The Guardian. During March, The Guardian's podcasts are sponsored by audible.co.uk. Audible has over 60,000 digital audiobooks and are offering Guardian podcast listeners one for free. Visit guardian.co.uk slash free download to find out more. From all corners of the country, three people have come to London. They are here to appear on the Media Talk podcast with a man famously hard to please, John Plunkett. Well, actually, I'm not that hard to please, and you're listening to Media Talk from The Guardian. You might have guessed from that, or possibly you didn't, that this week we'll be talking about the return of The Apprentice to BBC One. I'll be somebody you'll know for the rest of your life, and I'll be somebody who your grandchildren will know for the rest of your life. I'm going to get there by being ruthless. Well, he sounds like a winner. We'll also be catching up with all things Leveson and the latest arrests in the police investigation into phone hacking. Plus, we look at BBC plans to sell its programmes online. Eat your heart out, iTunes. And get mash, get smashed. Well, I would if I was Pete Cashmore and CNN was about to pay $200 million for my website. We'll talk all things mashable. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week is The Guardian's head of media and tech, Dan Saber, and all-round Media Guardian reporter, that's his brief, not his profile, Josh Halliday. Welcome both. We start off this week with the latest developments in the police investigation into phone hacking. This week saw six people arrested in a dawn raid on Tuesday, but two of them were of particular interest, Dan, Rebecca Brooks and her husband, Charlie. Now, they were arrested on, it was conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. Is that right? Yeah, uh, clearly everyone's innocent until they're proven guilty. So I think there's not a, a lot we can say about these arrests, but I think what we can say is that the police inquiry has really sort of struck out in a new direction, and that is to say that people have been arrested on suspicion to convert, uh, pervert the course of justice. And that is a relatively uh, uh, new sort of line of inquiry pursued by the police. Uh, People have been arrested before mainly on suspicion of sort of phone hacking or conspiracy to hack phones or suspicion of making corrupt payments. Uh, Rebecca Brooks was arrested actually on July 17th last year just after she resigned as Chief Executive of News International at the height of the um, Millie Dow of Furore. And and, and that was on, on, uh, again, on sort of suspicion of conspiring to hack into phones. So... Uh, it's a new development, it's a new direction, we'll just have to see what it means over time. And a head of security was arrested as well, was one of the other people arrested on, on Tuesday. That's right, a gentleman called Mark Hanna, uh, Director of Security, uh, and a, a, another News International employee uh, report suggesting that was, a, uh, I think, a driver of Rebecca Brooks's. So, uh, uh, so a couple of, other, couple of other people arrested at News International, uh, Rebecca Brooks and Charlie Brooks, unfortunately. They, Charlie had been due to go to the first day of Cheltenham, uh, which he'd been rather looking forward to. He'd written about it in his Telegraph column. Uh, he wasn't able to go, although he was photographed there on the second day. So he did his best to make up for lost time. And two other people that we don't even know who they are, which is uh, uh, rather curious. The name's not sort of seeped out in the public domain, but not News International employees. And uh, racing fans might like to know that Charlie Brooks had a horse, uh, not not at Cheltenham, but in Huntington on, on the on the, uh, on the Wednesday, which came in second. So uh, c- cause for minor celebration. I, I, well, I guess do you get prize money for coming second? I think yeah. Well, I'm a I'm no racing expert, yeah, but it's got to be it's got to be at least a three figure sum. Yeah, well, at least he's got something uh, 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 on the week. Um, you know, the police inquiry sort of go, you know goes on and on. They were held for they were held for more than twelve hours, separate police stations in Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. Um, 
so it's quite a long you know it's quite a long time to be held these were dawn raids they were uh, uh taken between five and seven in the morning we don't know exactly what time uh, there's an infant baby there that uh, uh, Scarlet. So I mean, they would have had to make some arrangements for the for the, for the baby's care, of course. So uh, you know, uh, uh, pretty um, uh, punchy police tactics, certainly as regards as regards the raids. These were not arrests by appointment, for example. Uh, I'm going from London to New York, where James Murdoch admitted in a letter to MPs this week that he could have asked further questions and conducted a more thorough investigation into phone hacking at News International. He also could have read all the way to the end of his emails. He didn't add. Uh, Dan, what's, what's, uh, what's this about and wh- why has this come now? Well, this is tremendously important uh, in its way. It was a seven-page unsolicited letter from James Murdoch. Didn't particularly say anything new in and of itself, uh, 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 but did set out a case before the Cultural Media and Sports Select Committee at a crucial time. Uh, after months of hearing about hearings about phone hacking in the wake of the, that Millie Dowler furore I talked about earlier, uh, uh, the CMS committee are close to actually finalising their report. And everyone is waiting to see what language they'll use, how critical they'll be of James Murdoch, which is in turn seen, I think, by the board of B-Sky-B as sort of all-important and whether he continues as chairman. Uh, and I think if he doesn't continue as chairman, then he's sort of finished as a kind of ex- international executive at News Corporation. So you know, the, the, the whole, whole lot of things seem to be hanging on this. So uh, the committee has sort of been drafting and redrafting, and I think they're sort of some way from agreement. We're not really expecting anything to come out of the committee until the far side of, uh, of Easter. So uh, an opaque situation there, everything to play for there. And that's why James has written his letter now. And this report's been delayed. Is that because of the sheer weight of evidence or any particular reason behind that? I think it's very sensitive. I think the committee is having to weigh its words very judiciously and the precise language it uses as regards James will be very important. And so it's not something you can funk. You can't sort of come up with some sort of you know, acceptable compromise in an afternoon. Uh, and the committee will uh, be quite will be quite divided to a degree, but I think not exclusively on political lines. So we just can't expect a sort of an easy journey here. Um, very interesting sort of moment. And uh, Josh, all this happened, of course, against the background of another week of the Leveson inquiry. Um, you've been there, if not in person, then online. Uh, what, were the, what were the key moments this week? Well, mercifully, it was, a, it was a relatively quiet week at the Leveson inquiry. Uh, the standout moment, I think, for all of us looking in was just a... Uh, a small but significant moment of colour on Wednesday's proceedings when it emerged that Lucy Panton, the News of the World's former crime correspondent, had actually, her links with Dick Fedorcio, the, the Met's uh, former head of public affairs, um, were so close that she had filed a story to her news desk from his computer um, at New Scotland Yard. Um, it's not, it's, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't implicate Lucy in any way in any wrongdoing, but it's, it's a significant uh, marker of how close um, uh, some people at Scotland Yard became to uh, journalists in this area. Do you think that's right, Josh? I have to say, dare I say this, I have on occasion, and I'm sure you two gentlemen too, I, you know, one has been sort of wanting, needed to file a story on deadline in a rush, and sometimes you've used someone else's computer, you know, a PR's computer or some such to file the story. I mean, maybe it's different because it's the police. Um, you know, it doesn't look good now, but I didn't quite see that I as think it is the most heinous be- crime. I think it is different because it's the police. Um, the and he- it was his email as well, wasn't it? And she forwarded an email to her news desk from his email account as well. That's right. Why couldn't she have used a BlackBerry? We've all filed stories on BlackBerry. Um, we do to this day. And back then it was probably, you know... 
it was well it was an accepted method you, you did it all the time full I, disclosure i did once uh, uh, email a, a story in from the offices of absolute radio but uh, possibly it was virgin radio back then uh pre-iphone does this uh, i don't think we do anything quite so well um, right there can i carry on presenting this I, particular I, podcast I, I think you're fine i don't think we do quite quite do anything so dangerous in uh, in media reporting. But I think there was some interesting evidence from Sandra Laville, um, our own crime correspondent at The Guardian. And I think I think there are some things in this sort of module, this Preston Police module, where I think the Leveson Inquiry is sort of struggling a bit to find a, a locus. And I think, as sort of Sandra said, you know, taking a copper out and, you know, and buying a drink uh, uh, is a sort of normal human social interaction. I mean, it's just what people do. It's not corrupt or tending to, to, to corruption. And journalists are all the time going to warn, uh, you know, private, uh, un, uh, unfettered access to police officers uh, away from press minders and so on. And, and that can be very important in breaking stories. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think... We need to be, you know, I think one needs to be a bit careful. And I think the inquirer sort of sometimes just sort of ask questions which really, you know, stray, you know, get to the get to the point where you think we're living in some kind of state where everything, you know, if every contact between a journalist and a police officer is going to have to be mediated by a press officer, this is a bad world we're getting into. And Stephen Wright, the, the Daily Mail's associate editor, built on this on Thursday when he said that um, actually recording um, the detail of every single meeting between a police uh, staffer and journalist um, could lead to a whole new uh, form of corruption in, in that it can be manipulated by senior officers uh, at the force and it could lead to new ave- uh, avenues of uh, to be worried about. I thought he gave really impressive evidence to the Inquirer on Thursday. Okay, well, more Leveson next week, of course, but on now to one of James Murdoch's favourite topics, although to be honest, his mind's probably been on other things of late. It's the BBC. Director General Mark Thompson announced plans for a new paid-for download service, which will be a bit like the iPlayer, except you pay for it and you get to keep it. Uh, Josh, what did you make of this? It's Project uh, Project Barcelona for reasons uh, we're, we're still not entirely clear. Yeah, the oddly titled Project Barcelona. I think it's what iPlayer fans have been after for some long time. Um, at the minute, they only get to watch um, catch-up programmes on the iPlayer for 30 days after they've been broadcast on television. Um, for a lot of us, that's just not enough because we have enough to do in our you know daily lives without... We can't cram everything in. Um, this gives them the opportunity to down download the uh, programmes and keep them well in forever um, as Mark Thompson suggested uh, prices still to be ironed out and deals with independent producers it seems also still to be ironed out um, it's interesting given the iPlayer's explosive growth and huge popularity over the past few years whether this will tip some of the balance back towards um, what is really now an old or old school form of viewing television which would be to download it to a computer um, and carry it around on whichever computer you have, rather than stream it over an internet connection. Dan, it's going to be controversial, isn't it? Because people are going to say, well, you know, I'm paying for something that I've already paid for through the licence fee. If I can go on to one of the comments on the, the Media Guardian story from Bakerlite, who said, uh, what is the BBC, public service broadcaster or commercial entity? Uh, can it have it both ways and still ask the public to fund through a licence fee? Absolutely right. Uh, I got in quite a sort of 
healthy exchange of views on Twitter on this point. I think it all depends on timing. Now, Mark Thompson was talking about making programmes available for paid-for download immediately after broadcast. Actually. Well, he, he said soon, yeah, and sources in the BBC said, you know, that the aspiration is it will be, it will be available as soon as it goes on iPlayer, which is, you know, minutes well, straight after. Well, that doesn't feel right to me because I think uh, that there should be a free window and the iPlayer captures that quite perfectly. Uh, you know, a period of time where, you know, we have paid our licence fee. It's a compulsory <laughs> television levy. And so we should be able to watch these programmes for free for a period after original transmission. And I think, uh, you know, I'm sure one could do something clever with time-expired downloads, although you'd have to get some good uh, uh, digital rights management on top of that to make sure that they weren't hacked into. In other words, the programmes did delete themselves after seven days or something if you got them for free. There's nothing wrong with the BBC charging. It's like... DVD. It's the next thing after DVD. So don't have a problem with that. It's just about the sort of uh, about the timing of it. But if it was straight after, I would that wouldn't that wouldn't be right. You know, we've got to, There's got to be a period where we've already paid for this television. So there's got to be a free period before we get into a paid for period. And I think the B should have been clearer about that from the get go. Staying in the digital sphere, if you will, a blog that a Scottish teenager set up in his bedroom seven years ago is about to be bought by CNN for $200 million. Or is it? Uh, Josh, there was much excitement earlier in the week that CNN were about to announce this deal, but it hasn't come to pass just yet. Um, what, what does a global network like CNN want to do with a, a tech news site? And it's uh, Mashable we're talking about here. Well, Mashable has grown its audience rapidly uh, over the past uh, few years since it was launched in 2005 from uh, an Aberdeen teenager's bedroom, as you say. Um, it's, captured, um, it's captured the rise of websites like Facebook, uh, MySpace, Twitter, a whole host of others um, uh, perth- perfectly well. It knows its audience. It explains the new uh, new digital terms in in simple, easy to read language, without being patronising to its audience. I think that's a huge win um, for CNN if they eventually um, buy Mashable as they're expected to announce next week. Um, but also, they're paying uh, a reported two hundred million for the person and the people behind Mashable, um, uh, which is uh, Pete Cashmore. He is the Brad Pitt of the blogosphere, as we've heard this week. Um, he'll bring new blood into CNN, as Ariana Huffington seems to have done at AOL, and um, uh, Michael Arrington of TechCrunch did uh, less well at, at AOL. Uh, this is important for uh, media giants and technology giants to do, um, to appeal to new, younger audiences. Um, and look, Cashmore created this uh, huge, huge global website from his bedroom um, seven years ago. Would he be able to do something like that um, at CNN if he was given the free reign um, today or tomorrow or next week? Well, it depends on whether he's given the free reign by CNN. As, uh, when, CN- when media giants buy up entrepreneurs or hire entrepreneurs, they don't always get the free reign that they would like. Um, if CNN was smart, then they would give cash more. Um, a complete free license to do uh, as he sees fit, I imagine. So Dan Cashmore gets more cash, but uh, what did you make of that? Don't well, pull that good, face. Yeah. Fantastic joke. It's a bonkers deal, though. They're, they're what do you not, make of the two hundred million dollar no, price tag? Bonk, it's bonkers. I'd like to see what Mashable's revenues are. If they're ten million dollars, I'll be impressed. It doesn't matter if they're sort of forty or fifty million dollars. I mean, if, if it we're really talking about two hundred million dollars, they're paying a multiple sales, and CNN are off their rockers. 
uh, uh, I, I can't, you know, nobody, if as Josh saying, they just really want the individual, and I'm, I'm sure Cashmore's a smart guy, and he certainly photographs well, then why not sort of hire, pay him, I don't know, a million dollars a year or something? I mean, no journalist is that is that clever or valuable. Uh, you know, I wish we were. And, and Mashable won't live up to expectations of that kind of price. I hope to God they're paying in paper if they are if they're paying that kind of money. They will only look silly for a long time afterwards. I mean, how many times have we seen tech companies and their media companies buy websites at you know big multiple uh, big multiples at telephone numbers and to look and to be sort of pilloried for it for months afterwards? And although I'm sure Mashable's got an audience that CNN would like doesn't seem to massively fit in with the CNN brand, if you ask me. Um, I just don't see the point. And if they had any brains, they would not do this deal. Well, Cashmore told staff that it's, uh, it's not true it's going to happen this week, which uh, only prompted more speculation that it's going to happen next week. But uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. Back to the small screen now. And the competition's been hotting up between ITV's Britain's Got Talent and its upstart BBC One rival The Voice. And they're not even on screen yet. Uh, Dan, this was sort of an old school scheduling clash, really, between the BBC and ITV. They really sort of um, they were going at it toe to toe. Oh, this has been great fun. I'm loving the build up to the voice actually uh, uh, coming along. You know, ITV is absolutely determined to try and sort of wound it at birth. Uh, uh, they park BGT's tank on its lawn. Um, normally, BGT goes out a bit later in the year, although ITV are terribly insistent it normally goes out now. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, they were scheduling it fairly aggressively until the very last minute with some, you know, with a fairly tight overlap. I forget, I think, I mean, I can't remember exactly how many minutes, but they were certainly sort of overlapping for, I think, half of the voice's potential run with the with, with the Cowell juggernaut. Yeah, I mean, at least had the good sense to back away at the last minute, but, you know, never mind that. Let's just enjoy the theatre. Wonderful briefing behind the scenes. Everyone's criticising everyone else. There have been suggestions the BBC wanted to get Kylie Minogue and pay a million pounds to have her as, you know, as a judge and the the BBC has got this incredibly commercial property they shouldn't have and the Beeb are fighting it off and trying to say things like well Willem's only getting half a million which is you know one way of defending yourself um, sure ITV would spend more on judges would probably spend more on the show but you know it's the BBC it's a licence fee funded format you can argue it every way you like I, I, you know what I like above all though is that everyone's briefing everyone's sort of causing each other trouble uh, you know what that what does that make you think I think ITV might be just a little bit worried about the voice or at least they want to set it up so if it flops the BBC look mighty dumb. Both shows are going to launch on the 24th of March and the uh, the big sort of hoo-ha this week was uh, how much they'd overlap and uh, as Dem mentioned there ITV sort of pulled back at the last minute so there'll mm. only, be, only be a 20 minute overlap but um, you know I mentioned there it was like a sort of old-fashioned uh, scheduling clash but how important is it today in the in the when we've got video on demand and, and the iPlayer and uh, personal video recorders uh, you know or, or is it is it still important? I don't think it is impo- as important nowadays. I think it still is important because um, event TV has grown uh, in parallel with social media almost because we see um, part of the attraction of uh, talent shows like The Voice and Britain's Got Talent and X Factor is, is seeing what all your friends and even non-friends on Twitter are saying about um, the, the events as they happen live on TV. That should not be overestimated by uh, any means, although it's so easy to catch up later these days at your own convenience and leisurely flick through the adverts uh, as if they never happened. Um, I think the big draw of live TV is is the social media that accompanies it and um, The Voice and Britain's Got Talent if they're smart this year they'll, they'll try and take advantage of that as much as they can I'm sure I'm sure they will, it's moving in that direction 
Yeah, a bit of um, a bit of sort of sort of mutually reinforcing competition, you know, the sort of Celtic and Rangers kind, if that's a good analogy, or Man U and Man City kind, is sort of quite would be a good thing. I mean, I like the idea of the BBC and ITV really sort of slugging it out with these two juggernaut shows and briefing against each other and competing. And I think that it just creates a bit of a buzz around, uh, you know, around around television, a, a bit of a buzz around both shows, and certainly around the Voice, which needs, um, I think, sort of needs all, you know, needs all the hype it can get. And ITV have just uh, unveiled their uh, first ad for the new series Britain's Got Talent, sort of a James Bond-style trailer in which uh, Simon Cowell emerges from an office, which it turns out is in the Y of the Hollywood sign, uh, which uh, I hesitate to get uh, too overexcited by it, but I think it did make you realise how much uh, his ITV shows, uh, they really missed Cowell last year, and it's, uh, uh, I, I think... Come 24th of March, I think there'll be a real sense of anticipation around it. I think Cal will want to show that he's still got the sort of rapport with the British viewers, that he can get the, the viewing numbers up. He had a year uh, to forget, didn't he, last year? Well, he wasn't on our <laughs> Not screen. his pay packet necessarily, but... Well, quite so. He wasn't, clearly wasn't on screens in Britain. And, you know, the X Factor USA uh, did OK, but Idol did better, which will annoy him. Uh, and there's a lot to play for here. You know, the voice is... Um, uh, it's a format put together by the big brother man John DeMol, but but in partnership with um, his arch rivals, that's Cal's arch rivals in the music business, Universal Music and Lucian Grange. So he's really going to want to sort of damage this format as much as he can. Uh, it, you know, if he can wound it in Britain, that might weaken it in other international markets. The voices all around the world, but Britain is so influential. Uh, it's also quite successful in America uh, on NBC. And again, anything that sort of knocks it here might help knock it somewhere else. And which one will you be watching, gents? I'll be going for The Voice and ITV on catch-up. Dan? <laughs> I, 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 I want to try The Voice and see how it goes. But, it, I mean, it could be rubbish within 20 minutes, couldn't it? But let's, let's just hope not. I mean, I, yeah, let's hope not. I really want some co- I mean, I have some competition to the Cal Monopoly. Well, I'll be watching Dad's Army on BBC Two. Uh, Dan and Josh, thank you very much. So I'm joined now by The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. Vicky, it's a big week because it's Apprentice Week. Yes, it was the Apprentice launch uh, earlier this week uh, where we saw the first episode of the new series, which returns to BBC One on Wednesday. This is the eighth series, is that right? It is. It's astonishing when you think about it, actually. I mean, they did have that big format change last year. Well, I say big format change, but a bit of a format change, you know, where the winner now gets a £250,000 investment in their business rather than a job with Alan Sugar, which nobody wanted anyway. So, strictly speaking, it's no longer Alan's apprentice. It's no, Alan's it's not. business partner. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So... Um, Uh, The search for Alan's business partner goes on and it's the same this year. It's also going to be an investment. And um, I mean, the thing with The Apprentice is it is a bit, really, it is a bit more of the same. But I think we all are quite happy to have more of the same. So, you know, there are people, there's this guy in the shiniest suit in the world ever. There are people, you know, the bit at the beginning where they sort of all give a line about themselves. There's this woman who says... I'm the blonde assassin, and another man who says, I'm the reflection of perfection, and right. uh, lots of shiny suits. You know, the usual, really. Uh, I remember when it used to be a business show. Do you? I think the first series was a serious business show, wasn't it, almost? When it, back when it was on BBC Two? Uh, I don't really have a recollection of it ever being that serious. I mean, I, might be I don't know. I mean, sort of... Um, You know, Lord Sugar was sort of, Lord Sugar, I can't believe I'm calling him that. Alan Sugar was um, saying at the launch, he was saying how he hoped that his show did show that you could go out with 100 quid and invest it and run a market stall and come home and pay no tax and no wages and be in profit, basically. Um, 
And I kind of I kind of think that maybe The Apprentice does perhaps at least open people's eyes to being more entrepreneurial, even if it's mainly a programme for laughing at other people who think a great deal of themselves and have swallowed a dictionary of business jargon, largely. Like uh, Bags the Brand, of course, who I think is probably the most... Probably the most famous. Sadly, it might be the most famous ex-contestant. Do you think now? I think I use so. famous in, in very large <laughs> inverted commas. Out of the whole field of ponies, he um, <laughs> galloped home to victory. And your prediction? Entirely unfair question, Vicky. But who's going to win? Oh, I have no idea. I think um, there is brilliantly. There is one woman who reminds me incredibly of Catherine Tate doing an impression of an apprentice uh, contestant. So I hope she wins. Uh, but I won't name her because I think that's a bit unfair that that's the only thing I say about her. Um, but uh, it's the usual, you know, the the first episode is the same as it always is. It's just full of, like, the men just being, like, massively macho and the women shrieking and making me want to go and murder them. So, um, yeah, same as usual. Well, good stuff. I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, another show which is on its uh, second episode this week is the BBC Do drama White Heat, of which uh, there were great expectations. I think maybe it suffered a bit for pre-broadcast when people compared it to um, uh, our friends in the north in terms of a sort of epic scale. But how, how's it how's it shaping up? Um, it, yes, perhaps it has suffered in, in that uh, our friends in the north um, comparison. Although to be fair, I don't think that's a comparison it has entirely shied away from. Um, Yes, it's written by Paula Milne, who is a a great writer, but I don't think is at her best in this piece, to be honest. Um, So it follows uh, a flat of of students in the 60s, and it's kind of this idea of a social experiment, bringing together students from different uh, classes and different backgrounds who want different things. Um, and it's one decade per episode, is that exactly. Right? So and like, so we sort of follow it up to, and there's there's kind of a modern day sort of flashback sort of element to it as well, which I, I'm not entirely convinced about. But maybe it will come together as we progress. Um, there's lots of things to like about it, including you know some really lovely performances, and I think it looks great. I think it sort of it slightly looks like the whole thing has been Instagrammed, but I don't think that's sort of to its detriment necessarily. It's quite sort of hazy and lovely. The light's very nice. And in fact, I think the direction is probably outclasses the script rather. Um, but in a way, it becomes, for me, it it comes a bit unstuck almost because of this uh, idea of you've got this flat of stereotypes. And I think there was even a line where they said, you know, where someone said, you know, we're a flat of stereotypes. And you're kind of like, yeah, you are. And for me, that's a problem, actually. Yes. <laughs> because, I mean, I know having talked to Paula Milne that she said she watched, you know, when she was around in the 60s, she did go and have an interview for a flat that was being set up on exactly these lines. So it's not that it, it, it seems perhaps a bit harsh then to sort of criticise it for, you know, therefore slipping into stereotypes. But I do think, uh, I, I find the concept of the flat and the way, you know, you've kind of got a posh one, an Irish one, you know, it, it, for me it's slightly jaws. Like the Spice Girls. Kind of. In that sense. Is there a sporty one? Um, I, I'm not sure right, we'll is. wait and see. Maybe in the 70s or the 80s. Um, uh, there were complaints online among some Guardian readers about the um, the clunky period references. Uh, I think lots of uh, lots of flashes of Lady Chatterley's Lover, for instance, and, and other people were complaining they were getting the music wrong. But is, is that sort of nitpicking a bit, or um, is it the sort of thing you have to get right in this sort of drama? Uh, I think it is, actually. I mean, it is, uh, in some ways, yes, it is nitpicking, but equally, as a viewer, if it's distracting you, then that is a problem, I think. Um, so I know it can be quite frustrating, those kinds of comments, but actually, 
uh, they do have a point. They, they shouldn't be distracting you from the drama. Well, TV drama doesn't get much tougher than in the 1960s, uh, which brings us on to, uh, <laughs> that was talking of clunky period references, uh, brings us on to MasterChef, uh, which is in its final week, which is uh, no better excuse than to uh, chat about one of your favourite TV shows, I think. Is that right? Well, I think it was one of my favourite TV shows, and then it became what? one of my absolute not favourite TV shows. And the lovely thing about MasterChef is that it really has found its feet again this year. You know, uh, this series, it's been on once a week, and for an hour a time, at the same time, every week. And it is actually... Revolutionary been, idea. Oh, I know, yeah. I know. Who would think of scheduling something like that? And uh, it has been much, much better for it. I mean, I say that, but of course the final now is like an hour a night for three nights this week. And uh, for me, that's just far too much. And they always drag it out to the nth degree and, you know, people are weeping. And, How does know. that work? Is that one course per night or... A- <laughs> That's right, they've had very intricate starters. <laughs> so as we record this, we're, we're betwixt the starter and the main course. That's right. Um, yeah, and it sort of goes on a bit at the end. Uh, but it has been, it's been a really enjoyable series, I think. And um, the contestants have been pretty decent as well. One of our, um, one of our readers, uh, E equals MC Hammered, is, uh, is what he comments under on the blog, says, uh, says he loves it, but he sky platters it so he can uh, fast forward through the, uh, the interviews, which he says are incredibly dull and always get the same answers. Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, they're always, what are you cooking? I'm cooking this. Why are you cooking this? Well, that's what I wanted to cook. Do you think you'll get it done in time? I don't know. I'll hope so. And But last night it was, why didn't you cook the fish? You appear to have entirely forgotten to stick it in the oven, which was a bit <laughs> odd. <laughs> yeah, poor old Tom the plasterer, eh? Did he go? Uh, no, no, they, we, they all oh, we don't stay know. in. Oh, they I all see, stay I in until the end of the week. And then Thursday well, no spoilers. night. Thursday For good night. reason. I know, yeah, Thursday night then we'll have our winner. Surely the raw fish man can't win unless it was sushi, which I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Well, I'll be outraged if he wins. I, I mean, I'm saying this now, but probably by the time this is even broadcast, I'll be busy being outraged somewhere because if Shalina doesn't win, I will be very cross indeed. Okay, well, updates on the, on the blog. Um, and finally this week, uh, a very successful ITV drama, which uh, you didn't used to say a while back, but ever since Downton, they seem to be... Uh, Hitting the right buttons is uh, Scott and Bailey, which was back, um, I think it was the biggest new drama of 2011, and it's back with 7 million viewers this time around, so they must be loving it, or viewers certainly are. Yeah, I think there's lots to like about Scott and Bailey, actually. Um, Not least that it's uh, a drama that's basically from a team of women, written for women. Uh, It's great, Uh, lovely to see all that female talent on and off screen and doing so well, and obviously that, you know, viewers warm to it as well. It is not a perfect thing by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, sometimes for me I find it uh, I find it good rather than sort of heart-racingly brilliant, let's say. Um, uh, but And the script sometimes can be slightly off. To be honest, it can be a bit, a bit ridiculous. But, um, it's no Midsummer, that's what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's not what you're <laughs> no, saying. No, that's not what I'm <laughs> saying, really. Um, um, but but I really like it, and I really like to see Saran Jones. I, I think Saran Jones actually is a really great actress who doesn't really get enough recognition, um, and is really very talented indeed. And you've got to love Leslie Sharp, who uh, yeah, I think uh, I remember her fondly for uh, Bob and Rose with Alan Davis, uh, <laughs> which may not be a phrase you hear very often, uh, and also that uh, the uh, the the. Uh, the God thing with um, Christopher Eccleston. I'm yeah. going back into TV history there, aren't I? <laughs> a little bit, yes. Yeah. Maybe not God, um, maybe Jesus Christ. She's great, and I really enjoy them together as well. And I think they're quite well written in terms of... Um, I worried, I think, when I first saw Scott and Bailey, that we were just going to have an awful lot of home life and emotional 
sort of stuff and not enough actual police drama and it would almost become you know too sort of fluffy basically and I think the balance is done very well indeed between the family life and um, between Saran Jones sort of not having um, a family and how that balances between them and the rapport between them is fantastic I love them together. And the, and the two lead characters happen to be women, but it isn't all about the fact they are women. Uh, I remember you saying about Prisoners' Wives was infuriating, which had a very big female cast, but a lot of the drama was to do with their relationships with men. Well, yeah, and the whole title. I mean, just the most infuriating thing ever. A very good drama, but just, you know, just the title of it made me want to pinch people. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's really good in terms of it's absolutely unmentioned that, you know, they're sort of this leading crime pair in a team of mainly men and their boss is a woman, you know, that she's great as well. And it just goes unmentioned and it's which I think is a really good way to deal with it. Well, another hit drama on ITV. Vicky Frost, thanks very much. Thank you. You can leave your feedback on anything and indeed everything you've heard on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. You can also follow me on Twitter at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk was produced by Jason Phipps. See you next week. During March, The Guardian's podcasts are sponsored by audible.co.uk. Audible has over 60,000 digital audiobooks and are offering Guardian podcast listeners one for free. Visit guardian.co.uk slash free download. To find out more. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.